You may be seated. It's now time for us to come to God's means of grace, his word and his sacrament. And I invite you to turn to our text. We're making our way through the gospel of Luke. And so maybe on your phone or in your personal Bible, soon we're going to have the pew Bibles back out. Uh, and you can turn there. But this morning, it's Luke, the last few verses of chapter 5 into 6. We've looked at, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the lives of, of those like Peter and James and John, and even la- last week, uh, this low life uh, Levi, uh, who's a tax collector, their life. Um, really, it, you know, there was no plan of their own, but it's just turned upside down by two words. Uh, Jesus utters to them, Follow me. And everything changes uh, for them. They are transformed. Uh, the the, the lowlife uh, tax collector is uh, you know is, is a bit of a convert that is controversial, because, of course, because Jesus is spending time with people uh, that are sinners that are perceived as as bad, the super uh, religious Pharisees, the the super suspicious of Jesus as well. That's the Pharisees. Uh, they question his association with sinners, and Jesus clarifies. Listen, a physician doesn't come for people who are well, but for those who are sick. He comes for not this. He says he doesn't come for the righteous, but for those who are sinners. In other words, those who know that they need God's mercy, those who know that they need God's freedom and grace and forgiveness. He's coming for people who know they're not arrogant or assume or presume that God already has favor on them, but those who know that they need grace. Two conversations this week, one with a, a, a friend of mine who's of a younger uh, generation. Uh, yesterday at breakfast, we're talking and he was describing uh, we were in a restaurant and there was no background music and we were the only ones there it was kind of an early breakfast. And uh, there was you know, just a couple of other people there. And he was describing where he lives and he said the word he was describing the town and he says it, it borders. He's like, oh, I, I'm so sorry I said that. I, I know that's a real you know, touchy word right now. And uh, and of course, we, we know, right, there are all these words you just, you know, accidentally, inadvertently, you know, might say one of these, you know, touchy words. And, you know, it gets a little bit exhausting. Right. Honestly, I was talking with another guy, uh, my electrician who I befriended, and he was working on the panel at our house. And it was a kind of a lengthy process. And we got in a great long conversation. And he's kind of the same age as I. And he said, remember, the, remember back when you, you didn't have to worry so much about, uh, you know, offending people, that folks weren't so prickly. That, you know, you, you weren't about to, you know, cross over some, you know, terrible line with, uh, with you know, even disagreement. We, you know, nowadays he's like, you know, people will just cancel you or, or label you uh, wherever you stand. And he's like, and then look at you, you know, with a southern accent. I'm sure people think that of you all the time. I'm going to say something that's, you know, bigoted or, you know, narrow minded or, you know, just dumb. I don't know. You know, if I had a British accent, it would be different. You know, I'm sorry. You guys can enjoy listening to me preach. Maybe a bit more. One of the things that we we discussed, though, my electrician friend, uh, he says, uh, you know, remember the day there was there was a day when people would disagree even sharply about serious things, but they still had civility. And I said, I know I miss those days. It seems like and then I said, let's 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 try it out. Now, he doesn't know at this point that I'm a pastor. So I see he just assumes I'm a small business owner and and we, we've talked about a lot of things. But we've, and I've already peppered in conversations about God and, I, and about God's you know mercy to me and his goodness and and blessing. But I, I never brought up Jesus. And I said, well, let me try one for you. Let's talk about Jesus. 
Oh, that, that's a touchy one. You know, he said, that, that, I, got, I, got, I got some history there. That, that's something that's hard for me to talk about. And I said, I'm sure it is, but why don't you tell me why? And he went on to describe how there was a season of his life where he, he, was, he, was, he was burned uh, by the church. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, so I listened and I said, I'm, I'm sorry. There's times when followers of Jesus don't represent Jesus so well. And he says, yeah, tell me about it. I said, but Jesus is worried. He says, I, 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 I've kind of dispensed with that. I, I don't know about God taking on flesh and, and the whole thing about Jesus. I know you're real serious about uh, Jesus. And that's when I told him I'm a pastor. I'm like, yeah, I really am serious about Jesus. He's like, oh, wow. We agreed on food and music, but, uh, but it was hard on this one. He said, you know what, Troy, I, I respect that. He says, but my religion is this. He says, my political party is, is logic. And, and my religion is do-goodism. And I said, well, there's a lot of worse things you could be. Uh, I, I'm tracking, you know. I, I, I appreciate that, Aaron. I said, I have to grapple, though, with Jesus again and again. He's been good to me. I, I, I've known and have witnessed his, his, his mercy and kindness towards me. And I, and I want to lean in because there's a time. And I said, again, this is that controversial piece, I know. I said, John 8. Jesus says this in John 8, 24. And I looked at him and I said, Jesus says this, if you do not believe who I say I am, you will die in your sins. Indeed, you will die in your sins. So it kind of makes us want to lean in, right? I said, I'd rather give him too much credit than too little credit. He said, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. So we're going to continue the conversation. He's coming back and we'll pick back up. Some people are not followers of Christ. For various reasons, maybe they're maybe they're apathetic, maybe they're ignorant. Some people, maybe you're here today and you're you're not a follower of Jesus, and we're glad that you're here. I mean that with all sincerity. And there's some people though that are actually antagonistic towards the real Jesus of Scripture, not not one that they've made in their image or one that they've concocted in their mind, but the Jesus revealed in the Gospel account. And so, what do we see? What what do we see with Jesus? Even in the previous weeks, we see this severe uh, reaction. To Jesus at times. We talk about you know cancel culture. They want to push Jesus off a cliff. A couple weeks ago in our reading, right? And here they too want to destroy Jesus. Let me invite you to stand as we read God's word again together. Luke 5, we'll begin in verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding? Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one who puts new wine into old wineskins, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, quote, the old is good. Chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. 
But some of the Pharisees says, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but for the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to the, he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to, to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it. And after looking around at all of them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with, no, discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me ask for his help. God, you, uh, you know that we uh, need to hear from you, so would you please... Ascend Holy Spirit that he would be our teacher. Some of us, Lord, perhaps this morning are unsettled. Some of us are unclear. Some of us might even be caught in unbelief. I pray that you'd fill us right now with with faith, with faith so that we might follow you no matter the cost. For Jesus sake, we pray and ask for he's the only one worth it. Amen. Amen. How do you relate to uh, the law of God? How do you relate to the law of God? It was read earlier, right? Deuteronomy 5, and then what we read this morning is Exodus 20. It's the law of God. It was was revealed to God's people Israel. It was actually a gift, believe it or not. It was a picture of God's – it is. It is a picture of God's character. He's trustworthy. He is true. He He is faithful. He is generous. We see his character in his law. He also expresses his desire for us, his desire not to inhibit our joy, but to protect and to cause us to flourish. It's not meant to to restrain and prohibit our desires as much as to lead us into life and joy and freedom, not slavery. I've given this imagery before, but imagine if you would the law. We talk about the law of God as the tracks of. On which our hearts are intended to run. Right? We're not talking about a roller coaster here. We're just talking about a good old fashioned train. Our hearts. The law of God is like the the tracks that our hearts are intended to run. It it runs best. It only runs. (laughs) when, When you're lined up on the tracks. But if we relate to God's law. And I've said this before. Like a ladder. Then to, to, to climb a ladder to ascend, to try to reach up to God, to gain his uh, approval or his acceptance or his attention, to reach a place where, where he owes us or there's favors that come to us by obedience to his law, then we've misunderstood. In fact, we've already violated the law worse. God has given us. That's a, that's a rickety ladder. It, it always disappoints. It fails us because it's built on self and self-righteousness. It will enslave us and disappoint us every time. I have just three questions this morning to help us um, you know, reflect on this text. I've got them listed in the order of service there. Why this parable? 
What is the Sabbath and who is blind? First question. I know that you're thinking to yourself, by the way, there's no one blind here. And, and the, there's a guy with a withered hand who's disabled, but there's no one blind. Well, I'll get to that in, in a moment, what I mean. But this first question is, why this parable? I mean, just, let me just work through these last few verses in chapter 5. There's this mention of, of fasting, which, it, which was and is a fruitful exercise spiritually and denying ourselves of things like food. And it helps us to, to, to concentrate and to consecrate ourselves to God at times. And, but th- this particular point, though, it is, is a, it's associated with a somber grieving and, and mourning. And the disciples of John, that's the, the, you know, the, the last prophet precursor of Jesus, and then the Pharisees are viewing it as a means to a more uh, you know, uh, ascetic life. But G- Jesus is saying there, there's a time to fast, but there's, there's a time to feast. And a wedding is a time... For joy and for celebration. I'm sure many of you could, could think of, of times in the past that a wedding marked it one of, the, one of the, the sweetest times of celebrating and feasting. Well, then who's the party? Who's, who, who, who is the bride and the groom? Why is Jesus bringing this up? Jesus is subtly saying, I am the bridegroom. And that, that's, that's true because there are Old Testament references in the prophet Hosea and, I, and Isaiah that, that point to God loving his bride. J- Jesus is saying nothing short of, I am God. I am God. My people are my bride. Jesus is saying he wants to bring joy to those who are bonded to him. Then there's this meta- That's the metaphor. But then there's this parable. The, the parable is you know, concerning cloth and uh, and wineskins. Let's go back to our text. He also told them a parable. Verse 36. No one tears a piece from a garment. No one. Verse 37. He goes on to say no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled and destroyed. If you, in other words, Jesus is saying if you try to proceed with m- m- mixing and stitching the new with the old, you will experience a problem. In that day, it would be common for things like goat skins to be used once they were dried up to store wine. That, that's, that's good. That's fine. But the problem is if you have an old uh, dried up wine skin and you put new wine in it as it's still fermenting and expanding, then it will burst. Then he talks about the cloth, too. It would, it would, it would eventually rip the new as it dried up. Jesus is, in essence, saying, I'm not here to be patched in, to be just simply, you know, mixed in. I'm not here. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to be, you know, like this little segment on the sideline of your life or your system or your thinking. Jesus is saying, I've come because I'm the culmination of all this and I'm going to be the center of your life. It's, it's, a, it's a radical shift that he's introducing with the new I'm going to be the center if you, if you can see it. But then they couldn't see it because look at verse 39. He says he's, he's, he's describing their problem. The tragedy is this. Verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. In other words, you're missing it. You're so content to the audience that are, that are listening to the serious to the to the Pharisees. He's saying you're so content with the traditions that when Messiah is right there, the, 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 the new 
the new hope of Messiah is right there in front of you. Your appetite is gone. You don't even desire what is new. The renewal that God can bring. Well, let's move on. I want to spend the majority of our time with this question. What is the Sabbath? Luke arranges uh, in describing this gospel two Sabbath accounts lined up together. Two scenes of, of contention. And just some background. What is Sabbath? This is not a newfangled uh, uh, thing that the people of, of God Israel invented. This is something that God instituted all the way back uh, near creation with our, our parents in the garden. He, he described it was for our good. There would be a day of the week that was set apart for our good. That, that word Sabbath simply means rest or a, a cessation from, from work. The Lord God, Genesis 2, describes, Thus the heavens and the earth are finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set apart, different. So that's a creation ordinance. But it's, it's then reiterated again with the moral law after the fall. With the Ten Commandments, which we just read in the Fourth Commandment. And the Fourth Commandment is six days you should work. That's the positive, you know. You know that, that's the, the, the prescribed thing. We should work and then rest for one. This is a pattern that God wanted them and us to experience. Now, just, just imagine how this would have been a precious gift. If you lived in an agrarian society, right? If you lived in a time where there was subsistence, let's just try to tra- travel back in your mind's eye and imagine a place in a time when you would have to have subsistent living, meaning you, you're trying to maintain. You have to get crops. You have to gather water. You, you, you don't have a pension. You don't have insurance. You don't have a refrigerator. You don't have you know, long-term care disability insurance. You, you don't have you, – you, you imagine the picture, right? You don't have sick leave. You know, you, you, you work because you have to. You work because that's the way you get life and food and sustain yourselves. If you, were to, if you were to become sick or unable to work, it would be very detrimental to you or your family. This is toil. This is, this is hard but real life. And so when God comes to his people Israel and says, here's a day set apart. For you to rest and that everyone will observe this and you will not be required to work. Not even not even the people that are not part of your covenant community. Not even your livestock. This is the day. This is this. This is the best day of the week for them. They anticipated it. However, over time, the religious culture of Judaism began to quarrel and speculate at great length as to what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Over time, they began to, to kind of canonize a set of man-made rules that accumulated into like 39 different categories in the Mishnah, which include reaping, uh, winnowing, baking, harvesting. All of these things were uh, prohibited. The Sabbath was so strict. There were extra uh, biblical laws that established, uh, you know, you couldn't write more than one word. You couldn't uh, tie a knot. I guess kids wore Crocs back then. Uh, you know, even to this very day, the Jewish people, uh, you know, in, in Israel, I've been there on a, on a Sabbath day. If you're in a hotel, the, 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 the elevator stops at every single floor because you're not allowed to uh, to push the button. 
you, you, you can see in the old city of Jerusalem, there are lines established so you can make sure that you don't walk too far on Sabbath. One teacher did help me grasp why it is that there was this seriousness. You see, the, the Pharisees felt like they were doing, they wanted to double down on Sabbath because they were losing so much. They were grasping to preserve a cultural identity when they, when they were in a time and place where they were losing it all. They, they, they had no longer a king. There were no prophets. Many people were not even speaking. They lost the language. Many people at that time were speaking Aramaic. You know, they're like, listen, we got to hold on to something to distinguish ourselves. And then they wanted to test to make sure that everyone was keeping with it. It was like a, a, you know, a commitment to their national identity. So when the, the Pharisees look at Jesus, they're like, hey, listen, your followers are not keeping the law. They're plucking grain. They're eating some of it. We saw them. Now, that's not stealing because even... The, the farmers were supposed to leave a, a portion in the corners for people to come and gather. But they're just eating these kernels. And Jesus reminds them that the law was not designed to inhibit life, but to give life. Now, how is this relevant for us? Well, we notice that Jesus is saying in verse 8 that he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. Which is not to suggest that he's saying, we're done with that. Right? Sabbath is, is old. He's saying... He's not saying, I, you know, he, he's saying, I make the rules. <laughs> and he's not saying there are no more rules. He's just saying, listen, he's addressing the use of the Sabbath. He's not addressing the use of the Sabbath, but the abuse of the Sabbath. He's not trying to abolish a day. He's trying to, to preserve and guard and keep and restore it for what it should be. For Christians, the Sabbath essentially has, has shifted for us. Instead of the, the last day of the week, now it's the... First day of the week, Resurrection Day, this day, when we celebrate and we worship and we rest, we call it the Lord's Day. We're invited to cease from work. It's a central day to to worship and to rest. God gives this for our good, not to get us distracted. God knows that that we we need this, the, the day that we would prioritize worship and rest. We delight on this day and rest because of what Jesus has won and purchased and fulfilled for us. He is both a reflection of creation and redemption. We hear again from his word. We come on this day and we we recalibrate our hearts and our minds. And then we rest our bodies physically. In our context, nowadays, there's no quarreling over the use of the Sabbath. It's largely been just totally disregarded altogether. Now, a word on work. To say that we as a culture, if you're if you fall asleep, uh, that's not the kind of rest I'm talking about today. Um, Stick with me. okay? I think you're going to agree with me on this point, even if you've disagreed thus far. I think you would agree that in our day, in our time, in our culture, we've got a pretty strange relationship with work. And and by the way, uh, technology and covid hasn't made it any better. It's expanded a lot of the, the warped expectations and understanding and the boundaries and the lines. We, we were, we're, it's all blurred. Yes, indeed, there are people who are lazy. And then there are some that are just way too busy. They're not necessarily productive. They're just busy. But many of us, many of you, I know very well, work. And young people, I'm not, I'm not disclude, I'm, you're included in this because your work and your calling is to be a student, young people. So don't lose me. Many of us 
overwork. And sometimes, for, di- for various reasons, some that are obvious and some that are not so obvious. And let me briefly touch upon that. I think there's a reason that we fail to rest. And a lot of it's tied to anxiety, and a lot of it's tied to idolatry. I'll give you some examples. Some of us, some of you, some people have a problem because there's the fear of not having enough money. We, we have to get ahead. We have to, we have to use our time well. We have to save. We have to, we have to work. We have to work multiple jobs, even if it crosses over into the Sabbath, because then I have to, you know, I have the money to pay my bills. But in reality, it may mean that you have a hard time trusting God to provide, who invited you to rest, that it would, it would make you more fruitful, and that we would have to trust him because he promises to provide. Others, it's the fear of losing a standard of living. That there would have to be something that would change in your lifestyle. You want to work more and more and more in multiple uh, layers and, and le- levels because you want to maintain a lifestyle that you've established that's very comfortable. For others, it's the fear of man. You, you feel as though you must please the boss. You must say yes to more and more responsibilities and even more time, even if it might violate your conscience and your other responsibilities. Others, it might be that you're just fearful of not fitting in with our culture, with all the, with all the pressing activities and sports. For others, there's a problem of idolatry and identity operating. I know for me, I find way too much joy in my identity with working. And I, I have an idol that reoccurs again and again, this, this idol of productivity. One day I was sitting at my desk and I looked over at my shelf and there was this book sitting there. And I, I promise you I had never seen it before. I don't know if someone snuck it in there and, and just uh, there was some little message there. It was a little tiny paperback book. And here's the title of the book. When I relax, I feel guilty. Who put that there? That's, that's speaking to me. This is my problem. Friends, we need rest. The law invites us to enjoy it. It's not a burden. It is a blessing. The Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is not just a moral duty. It is a life-giving delight. It's not a, I always say this, it's, it's not a got to, it's a get to. Regardless of what the culture says, I'm free. God is in control. He provides for me. And he is the one caring for my well-being. It is a delight that refreshes and not a duty. Last question. That's the Sabbath. Last question. Who is blind? Jesus here is showing his authority. He's showing his power. He is showing his mercy. He discerns their thoughts. Verse 8. And it says that you know, the man with the withered hand, presumably everyone there knew that this man had this crippling problem, right? And then Jesus does the unthinkable, both socially and supernaturally. And I want you to think about this. Consider what he is asking this man to do. It's impossible. Stretch out your hand. It's, it's like a, a cruel teenager mocking someone who's, you know, in a wheelchair. But Jesus is enabling this He is calling this man and at the same time enabling him to do the very thing. And he extends his arm and his hand. 
And it is restored. I can't even imagine what this was like, this whole scene. Of course, it's an illustration that human life and healing are part of Sabbath rest. But they miss it. They miss it. They miss. They are. What does verse 11 say? That was verse 10. Verse 11 says they're enraged. Sure, they can see physically, but spiritually they are blind. The rules and their national identity are so looming so large that they cannot even see the power and the mercy that's giving life to this crippled man. They preferred a religion with lists and duties that are self-focused and self-serving regardless of what face you put on it. And by the way, that exists to this very day. It, it's taken on different shapes. We, we still live in a very moral society. The, 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 the definition of that is shifting and changing and people are very judgmental. They have a, an educational philosophy, an environmental philosophy. They have a worldview that's surrounding all host and manner of social issues. And some of them may be very, very good and, 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 and worthy of our attention. But when you hammer and you harp on it, it will obscure the only good news, which is the gospel of Jesus. And that's true Christianity, not to be obscured with any any other social cause or or moral philosophy or education, whatever political thing. I'm telling you, hot button issues of the day aside, I don't care. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath and he is the bridegroom and he is worthy of our attention. And don't let anything or anyone, any cause obstruct that, my friends, brothers and sisters, please. You can't distill Christianity. You can't, you, can't, you can't break it down into a code of ethics. Where some people excel and another group fails. It's not a moral way of living with a checklist of duty or devotion or ritual. It's a vital living, communing relationship with the living God. Does it include moral, holy living? Yes, out of our gratitude for the grace of God. Yes, but that is not the sum. The sum of Christianity is not morality. If it was, then we would have a Christless Christianity. Because he came to seek and to save those who are lost, who are sinners like me and like you. The Pharisees are bringing dull legality and formality. And Jesus is contrasting this by analogy to a life-giving vitality and freedom and and reality. Again, I'm the bridegroom. He is saying, the Lord of the Sabbath. Enter my joy and enter my rest. Because the the final and ultimate rest, Hebrews 4 tells us, is what Jesus offers and provides. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, would you please even now uh, help us to bring these things into focus and to worship Jesus and adore him, especially as we come to this table. Lord, would you protect us from 
self-centeredness? Would you protect us from fear? Would you protect us from the enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil? Would you clear our hearts and minds when they're cluttered and confused or just downright busy? Help us to walk by faith that we might be a people who work hard and also rest in a culture that's just super busy. And help us to be a people, even as I heard it this week put so well, to be a a good news people in a bad news world. Help us to be humbled and unified people in a world that's arrogant and, and divided. Lord, I pray you'd give wisdom. You give wisdom to to leaders and to researchers and physicians and others who are trying to to treat and to respond to this pandemic. Lord, we pray for people in our community who are facing uh, any any number of of trials and even afflictions physically, emotionally, in their their marriages, in their families. People who are, are looking for new work or different work, guide them, Lord, grant each person in their, in their needs, the power and the comfort for the sake of endurance. Lord, thank you for answered prayers. There are many that we could point to. Lord, I thank you for, for new life in our congregation, young ones. And I pray uh, especially today for those recently born and those women who are expecting. Lord, as a, as a church, Lord, I pray you would guard us and guide us in ways that only you uniquely can as our Heavenly Father and as our Good Shepherd, in whose